This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Copper has been around for centuries. It's one of the most versatile metals in existence, and it's the basic metal of electrification. I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, I spoke to the economic historian and energy analyst, Dan Jurgen, who's also vice chairman of S&P Global, about how growing demand for copper could reshape the world. Jurgen and a team of analysts at S&P Global published a new report on copper earlier this month that concluded that a lack of copper may be a choke point that stops the world from achieving its climate ambitions. All the technologies that are critical to an energy transition, including solar panels, wind turbines, electric vehicles, batteries, charging infrastructure, and the wires that compose the grid itself, require more copper than their fossil fuel counterparts. Jurgen said the world needs to double its copper production by 2035. It's an enormous practical challenge, and he said that increasingly, copper is going to set the tone for geopolitics. As always, the interview is edited for clarity and brevity. Hey, Dan, thanks so much for joining me to talk copper. Well, glad to join you again. Thank you. Well, I think the best place to begin our conversation may be Paris 2015, the United Nations Climate Conference. Numerous countries committed to making drastic reductions in their greenhouse gas emissions. You and your team decided to dig in and say, is this possible? How would this happen? And in the new report you just produced, you conducted a deep dive on copper specifically. And it occurred to me that you could have chosen lithium or cobalt or nickel. Why did you settle on copper? The use of copper is broader. It is the metal of electrification. And coming out of the Paris conference, you know, it set the direction, the what that people kind of want to achieve, but really said nothing about the how. And the how gets down to the nitty gritty of what's required. And uh, obviously, people are focused on lithium and cobalt, but we thought that copper actually is the most critical metal of all for moving towards the net zero emissions. Okay, so the striking conclusion you reach is that even under the most ambitious projections, we start running into severe copper shortages pretty quickly. Yes. You know, to our knowledge, no one had really sat down to quantify it. And so we wanted to figure out what is the demand. And basically, it's eye-opening, it's eye-popping, actually, that this energy transition demand on top of conventional demand requires copper demand to double between now and 2035. And then we benchmarked it against supply, and it leads to a supply gap, and in some cases, a very large supply gap. Do you think that a shortage is likely going to stall the emission reduction targets the world has set? That's a really hard problem, because even in our optimistic scenario, where everything goes right, there's a shortage. And if trends continue as they are, there's a very large shortage. You know, gaps don't last. So what either happens is that somehow things really accelerate, but we'll get into the challenges of that, or the net zero emissions goal gets pushed out beyond 2050 by the realities of rising costs and insufficient supplies. We haven't looked at the other minerals, but we're focusing on copper and because it's so basic. And I think our study is a wake-up call. And what's it a wake-up call for exactly? 
Well, I think it's a wake-up call for realism. The new supply chain for net zero, how are they going to develop? And, you know, I think, well, Canada is a producer, the U.S. is a producer. To me, one of the things that really jumped out from the study is that 38% of the world's copper comes from two countries, Chile and Peru. And Chile is a country that, by the way, is going to vote in September on a new constitution, has a new government that is talking about giving nature unique rights and permitting, uh, raising a whole lot of questions. And so I think what it really does is it says focus on the reality of the supply chains. You know, and that, by the way, the very strong position China has in the supply chains, among other things, 42% of world copper is smelted in China. So when you add it all up, open your eyes and see what's happening rather than just look at PowerPoints or talk about ambition without uh, filling in, well, how do you achieve ambition? So I think the direction on towards lower carbon is, is clear, but you've got to be more realistic about timing. Right. I mean, this is sort of getting into talking about Latin America as the new powerhouse, there is a sort of new geopolitics to the world that's different from the current geopolitics, which are based on fossil fuels and where those are located. How would you characterize some of the new friction and tensions of the geopolitics of copper? It shifts the attention from one set of countries to another. Chile and Peru stand out, others do. And that means that what happens in the politics of those nations internally is very significant. The other complexity is the increasingly fraught relationship between the U.S. and China in this new era of great power competition, which both countries now basically describe as the state of their relationship. And that China, not just in copper, but clearly in copper, has just built up these strong positions up and down the, the value chain. And I think there's a potential collision between pursuit of net zero and the new geopolitics. China is positioned to continue to build its position in these markets. And it's kind of an integrated strategy from mining to the electric vehicles that China is now beginning to sell into the world market. You know, just to give you one example, and it's a big one, an electric car uses two and a half times as much copper as a conventional car. And many governments in the West are really going to be pressuring automobile companies and promoting EV sales, and EV sales drive up the uh, the need for copper. And we've already gotten a hint of that. The price of electric vehicles is going up. Yeah, I guess there's going to be some cost inflation and pressures as the supply and demand work themselves out for this new onslaught of copper demand that comes on. Yeah, copper is known as Dr. Copper because it is the most sensitive to the business cycle. And what happens to its price is often an indication of a coming downturn or a recession. But if we get back into a tight market in 2023, 2024, you know, that there will be a premium on copper prices in these kind of uh, scenarios of seeking to achieve net zero. I mean, and that'll cut both ways, right? Because it'll incentivize new supply to come online. It'll make, you know, lower grade deposits more economic to mine. Yeah. Clearly, price is such a powerful decider, so it will encourage new mines. But please note that according to the International Energy Agency, on average, it takes 16 years from discovery of a mine to of a resource to first production. So there'll be response what's called greater efficiency, which means a higher rate of production against the capacity of the mine. 
And then the other big lever is recycling. And in what we call our high ambition scenario, we assume the big growth in recycling. You know, one of the differences between copper and oil is oil gets consumed and it's burned. Copper can be recycled. And so certainly there'll be a drive for more recycling. And I think we'll start to see a priority. But then that means you need to set up a gathering system, you know, to, to get that old cell phone in which copper is the most important metal or your old computer or whatever you have, eventually your old EV battery. And to gather that all up, reprocess it and recycle it. But I think that will be one area where price will have a big impact. Now we're going to pause a minute for a short break. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. That idea that recycling is going to increase, that recycling can play a larger role in the energy system than it does under a non-renewable resource system. I mean, you mentioned that Chile is in the process of drafting a new constitution, which accords rights to nature. In some ways, I feel like that's what people find exciting about this energy transition is that it is a break from the past. It's a chance to sort of reset, apply new values. You know, companies are under pressure for ESG. There's a way in which it seems like the world is is ready for this type of transition. Yeah, certainly. I mean, the energy transition is happening. If we look at U.S. utilities, most of them will put in wind and solar in terms of new capacity and some natural gas. You know, I think the direction is clear. The view I have is oil and gas will remain important parts of the system, but the system will be much larger and it will have you know much bigger component of new technologies. But I think you know we are talking about large industrial systems, and I think particularly in the political side that there's just an assumption that things will happen, that wind and sun are free, not thinking about all the stuff that goes into the equipment that you need to capture the wind and sun. And so it requires requires a lot of physical inputs to get there. One question I think that is sort of central to this is whether copper will be as lucrative for Chile as oil has been for, say, Saudi Arabia or, you know, some other country that has huge oil resources. Yeah, that's a very good question. Certainly, copper has been a big source of GDP for Chile. But some years ago, a famous economist named Ray Vernon came up with this concept of the obsolescing bargain. You know, let's say Gabe Mining Company invests $6 billion in a new mine, and you go in and you make the terms, you look at it, did you get a return, the government will get its taxation. Then a new government comes in and, oh, the money's already spent, and they say, well, we want to raise taxes, and that then has a negative impact on how much you want to continue to invest in this mine. And so I think the stability and predictability of uh, fiscal and regulatory regimes is really important. But, you know, Chile has been a big beneficiary to its to its economy, but often people don't see how beneficial it has been. You know, what you see when prices go up, governments want to increase their fiscal take. And then when prices go down, they want to encourage people to invest and continue to expand capacity. So it's 
you know, there's a sort of a fiscal oscillation that goes on. And, you know, a lot, I mean, I think what happens with this new constitution in September will be very critical to the pace of investment in copper in Chile. Yeah. The new constitution is interesting. You mentioned it accords rights to nature. Is that something that is on your radar screen? Yeah. Yeah. That's a big question because, you know, the rights of nature, capital N for nature, you know, that's a pretty nebulous concept. And put it this way, it's open to a lot of interpretation. Yeah. And, and and because of its vagueness, it can be very contentious. I mean, mining in, in general, I think, is, I would say, contentious. Yeah, a, a lot of people don't like the whole concept of mining. I mean, one of the things we looked at in the report is the infrastructure. If you have roads that go through villages and disrupt communities, communities will be very upset and they'll express their concern and opposition as they have in Peru. So... You know, it isn't just a question of the mine itself, but it's the infrastructure and the system that supports it. It's also very important. And that's part of what, you know, known as the social license to operate. Are you benefiting communities? Are you creating jobs for people in communities, improving their standards? Or are the consequences creating impacts that have a negative impact on communities? Yeah. Right now, the U.S., I believe, is a net exporter of energy. But it's going to be a net importer of copper is one of the key findings in your report. That's right. And this goes back to our geopolitical question. It means that the U.S., you know, now it's really not, but it will be importing Finnish copper from China. And so this will be a new element in a relationship that's already become complicated over semiconductors. And I, I can tell you that while the U.S. politics is divided on many issues, what's striking is that the consensus that the U.S. and China are now rivals goes across the political spectrum from right to left in Washington, D.C. And so I think there will be concern about the degree of dependence. I mean, we see it on batteries, you know, the effort to say, wait, we don't want to depend mainly on China and then to a lesser degree on, on South Korea for, you know, lithium batteries. You know, in the United States, and now the same thing with Semiconductors is a bill that would invest $50 billion to subsidize semiconductor production in the United States. So I think, you know, U.S. production of copper has gone down 50% over the last quarter century. But technology is the wild card in all of this, right? Absolutely. I mean, obviously, innovation takes time. But, you know, in uh, the new map, I tell the story of this guy named J.B. Straubel, who was the one who gave Elon Musk the idea for uh, Tesla over a lunch in a fish restaurant in Los Angeles in like, 2003. And look at the success of Tesla today. And J.B. became the chief technology officer of Tesla for 15 years and really drove its development. And J.B. told the story that he saw a nickel mine in Canada and just saw the scale of it. And said, you know, we're going to have a problem if we if we have a growth of EVs. So he's now applying his creative genius to the question of recycling on a scale that's never been attempted before. So I think absolutely the wild card is what people will do. And also, of course, there will be an incentive if an electric car today takes two and a half times as much copper as a conventional car. The price is high. People will be looking for ways. How do we reduce the amount of copper? What about substitution? Aluminum is now used for long-distance transmission rather than copper. What else could happen substitution? So, you know, I think it's just the time frame is the question. You know, innovation, it takes time to get to scale. So 
these problems will be solved one way or the other. You know, we've seen that again and again, but it, it will take time and to, to double consumption in approximately a dozen years because you need to get the things in place by 2035 to have the impact for 2050. That's challenging. So maybe people will end up having to rethink the time frame, and that time frame will include the time for innovation, you know, technology to change things in, in ways that are not evident today. But in doing this study, we certainly, as part of our survey, said, you know, what do you see on the horizon from a technology that could make dramatic change? And at least at this point, we didn't hear about anything. I mean, you know, we've heard about rearranging the atoms in aluminum, but you know, that's a very basic research. So, but price is an incredible incentive and that incentive will be working on copper and the other minerals that are required for net zero. Well, it's a fascinating topic that we're going to be talking about a lot more, but thank you so much for coming on the show, Dan. Well, thank you, Gabe. Glad to be back with you to talk about this. That was Daniel Jurgen, vice chairman of S&P Global, a research firm. Thanks for listening to Down to Business and supporting us. And thanks to the always crack team behind this show, starting with Bryce Hall, our executive producer who composed and performed the original music. Pamela Heaven, Noella Ovid, and Victoria Wells provided web support and editing. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll return with another show next week. In the meantime, you can find up-to-the-minute news about the Canadian economy and businesses at financialpost.com.